Good evening and happy 2017 to uh, friends of Voices of the Sacred Feminine, whether uh, across town or uh, across the globe. If you're new to the show, and I know from the demographics, we have been picking up a lot of new listeners. I'm your hostess, Karen Tate. Um, I've been honored to be named one of the 13 most influential women in goddess spirituality and a wisdom keeper of the goddess spirituality movement. I thank you for taking your valuable time tonight and uh, every week to be with me and uh, warmly invite you to partake of the sharing the show has to offer, a show so many of you have lovingly called a treasure trove of wisdom for our time. And thanks goes out uh, to uh, the reclaiming folks uh, for use of their music that I've started using uh, at the beginning of the year. Um, They have uh, a a CD out called uh, Campfire Songs, and uh, the one you were listening to tonight is called Sweet Water. And if you caught some of the lyrics, uh, you kind of hear that a lot of their songs on that album are songs about activism. And this one in particular was about the water washing away greed. So, yeah, that's Reclaiming's uh, Campfire Songs album. Um, They're all very nice. You'll be hearing more of them throughout the year. Uh, I'll be playing new stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, that's one of the ones I want to listen to, um, you know, when I'm not doing the show. And you probably will, too. So, Uh, Anyway, uh, as I said, uh, I want to say hello to uh, the new listeners that uh, are joining me and getting to know me. Uh, I've been uh, the host here of Voices of the Sacred Feminine for uh, over a decade now, if you can believe that. The time has sure flown. And I'm the author of, uh, well, by the end of this year, it will be six books. Uh, My fifth just came out uh, in December uh, last month, uh, dedicated to Senator Bernie and Jane Sanders and our visionary foremother, Rianne Eisler. Uh, It's an anthology of the sacred feminine all grown up, as I like to call it. Uh, It's titled Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward, and it talks about how ideals of the feminine, like caring economics, sharing, nurturing, equality, fairness, partnership, uh, must become the new normal. Uh, to save the future of humanity and uh, Mother Earth. And I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, later on in the show. I've also uh, authored the award-winning Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth. My first one was Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, which, by the way, can be used to drive your own sacred tour to goddess sites the world over, and including a West Coast goddess pilgrimage up and down the coast of California, uh, or an assortment of other sacred sites of the divine feminine uh, across the United States and across the globe. Uh, Then there's Goddess Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology, which uh, gives us... Uh, some ideas to connect more deeply with goddess, I think, uh, whether you think of her as deity, archetype, or ideal. And I think it helps us understand how the spirituality uh, can help us become better people and help make the world a better place. And then uh, there's my first anthology. It's a collection of essays from guests who have appeared uh, here on the show chatting with me, folks like uh, Noam Chomsky, Rianne Eisler, Starhawk, uh, folks from the Cakes for the Queen of Heaven series, Liz Fisher, Shirley Rank, um, 
Joan Marler, Charlene Spretnap, Phyllis Chesler, Judy Grant. I've had Laura Flanders of Grit TV on the show, Laurie Felt of Planned Parenthood. Uh, yep, they're all in that uh, anthology because they have been guests here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And that uh, anthology is called Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World. You know, uh, we used to say down with the patriarchy, may patriarchy fall uh, in rituals performed by a group I used to belong to, but we didn't really understand, or or I guess I should say we didn't really articulate what we would replace patriarchy with. It was just kind of nebulous. We knew we didn't want that anymore, Uh, but, uh, you know, we we weren't, um, you know, we, we, we just didn't quite have all the pieces in place. Well, I'd like to think my anthologies and books give us some real clear answers how goddess spirituality can be relevant to reshape the world into one where we all have a wonderful quality of life and not just those who have been doing the domination and exploitation. You know, we really need to start taking responsibility for our own education because uh, I think uh, if we didn't know before, we know now. The political elites and the corporate media, well, you know, they don't have our best interest as their priority. And that's why I've been bringing you wonderful guests to broaden our horizons um, who are sort of beyond uh, the goddess community, but their values are in sync with ours. Like uh, recently, uh, Professor Robert McChesney was with me uh, discussing politics and journalism. I've had the economist and Professor Richard Wolf on. You know, in this way, when politicians try to double talk us or tell us, for instance, they have to privatize everything or uh, democratic socialism is a European evil, well, you'll know, um, you know, we'll all know better and understand, you know, they're kind of just puppets for their corporate masters who want to keep us fighting each other other instead of coming together to make government and the world work for all of us instead of just um, the one percent so anyway um Go to my website, uh, KarenTate.com, uh, take a look at uh, what's there. And um, uh, I just recently got an email from a girl in Denver, Colorado. Uh, they're going to be using Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World, as a teaching tool. And uh, she's ordered a dozen books for her students, and they're going to take each chapter and discuss it and um, understand you know, why it's relevant, how it uh, is connected to God spirituality and I've even uh, offered to Skype in uh, occasionally and see how they're doing you know answer questions and see if I can uh, be of any help and uh, you know I'm happy to do that if any of my listeners out there might have a similar idea Um, because you know I guess that's how I feel like I'm of service to the community uh, rebirthing the sacred feminine uh, to the center of society And, uh, you know, uh, I have been getting back to my roots a little bit, um, kind of uh, steering away from politics a bit. I know we're all kind of tired of that, and, uh, you know, we need to just sort of uh, have a a shot in the arm and kind of get back to uh, um, 
you know, kind of the traditional goddess stuff. Uh, recently, uh, Miriam Robbins Dexter was on the show. I hope you didn't miss that. Uh, you can catch our talk in the archives. Uh, we discussed the monstrous or frightful goddess. It was based on a paper she wrote for the Journal of Archaeomythology. And we really got into how um, the snake goddess and the owl goddesses and the bird goddesses. Um, you know that uh, you know those ancient symbols and images, and uh, how they became the monstrous and frightful goddess. Uh, so we sort of followed that thread from the earliest of times, and how the symbols and images uh, evolved. And uh, tonight, I like to think we're kind of getting back to our roots as well. We're going to be uh, talking about uh, symbols and imagery again tonight because it's so potent, it's so important. Um, and it's my great pleasure to have with me on the show tonight, Star Goody. And she has a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book out. Uh, I mean, it's a hardback full of uh, pictures. Uh, it, it really needs to be on our coffee tables. Uh, it's called uh, Sheila Nagig, the Dark Goddess of Sacred Power. Sheila Nagig, the Dark Goddess of Sacred Power. And um, Star, uh, Star was actually with me last weekend. We both attended and presented at the 13th Annual uh, Pagan Conference at uh, Claremont University. And uh, I so enjoyed uh, Star's wonderful paper. Um, I'm sure some of our talk tonight uh, will uh, cover some of uh, the important information she gave all those gathered there this past weekend. Um, I really do think her talk ranked up there and, uh, you know, some of the best. And um, as I said, I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to have her with me tonight. So let me just uh, start by uh, introducing her to you by way of her bio, and uh, then we'll begin our chat. Uh, so Star Good, uh, I'm not sure if she uses the E on the end there. I'll have to ask her. Uh, Star Good or Goody, G-O-O-D-E. Uh, she teaches literature at Santa Monica College, so we're neighbors. Uh, she was the producer and moderator for the cable TV series uh, The Goddess in Art, which is now available on YouTube. Uh, she's the author of uh, another book, uh, The Art of Living, Falstaff, The Fool, and Dino. Her latest essay, uh, Adventures She Has Brought My Way, uh, appears in Elders and Visionaries uh, Anthology. And as I said, the book we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, her latest, uh, the beautiful, beautiful Sheila Nagid, The Dark Goddess of Sacred Power. So, Star, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Well, and, and please tell me, um, you know, I don't recall actually um, uh, hearing them pronounce your name at the conference. Um, is it good or goody? Well, they did pronounce my name, but they pronounced it incorrectly. It's goody. Okay, okay, name, good. All right, goody. so. Okay, so Star Goody. Well, thank you so much for being with me tonight. Um, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to tell you uh, much at the conference. You know, we uh, we kept having these tiny little snippets of, of yeah. conversation. Uh, but, um, you know, when I first uh, started uh, in Goddess Spirituality, uh, one of the things that I felt really driven to do was travel to sacred sites, and that was how my Sacred Places of Goddess book came about. And, um, 
um, you know, because for me, going to the sacred sites of goddess really validated um, you know, her presence in the world, you know, in ancient history. Uh, there was something about standing in our sacred sites. Uh, it it just yeah. meant the world to me. And, um, you know, it, I knew it was no feminist fantasy then. I knew then that right. it, without a doubt, you know, things used to be different, no matter uh, how much people want to say it's always been this way. And um, when we went to Ireland and England, we spent a lot of time chasing down sacred sites of Sheila and Giggs. And that was some of the most fun, you know, finding them on um, walls in castles, finding them on tombstones, finding them on a church, uh, you know, uh, the pediment up on the church uh, uh, over the door kind of a thing, lintels, I guess. Um, you know, it, 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 it was uh, I, some of the highlights of uh, some of my travels. And uh, so I, I'm so glad to be bringing the Sheilas to uh, the audience. Um, Miriam Dexter and I, uh, a year or two ago, she had a book out called Sacred Display Objects where she uh, talked about Sheila Nagig's a little bit, but they called them sacred display objects. Um, So why don't we just start at the beginning, you know, for people who might not be familiar with the term Sheila Nagig. Why don't don't you explain, you know, their place, um, you know, their place setting and origins, and are they different from sacred display objects? Well, first of all, I want to say that when you go to those sites, I was so moved by what you're saying because so much of our history and prehistory is suppressed, but when you stand on that ground and feel that reality, it's like erasing all that um, suppression and feeling it and embodying it and taking it in. It can't be denied. I wanted to say that. Right, Uh, right. Well, feeling again. Okay, well, Sheila and Giggs are supernatural females who display their vulvas on medieval churches. Now, their time era is the 12th to 17th century, and as you said, they can be found on castles, on churches, on town walls, on holy wells, even on tombstones, at bishops' sarcophagus. So they are around in the sacred and secular architecture, and they have roots, for me, uh, that go back all the way to the Paleolithic vulva, back to the cave, to the cave art. And it's really no surprising fact that these supernatural figures should appear on the soil of Europe because, after all, Christianity is just a thin veneer. There's millennia of worship of these goddess figures. And the Sheila is basically an archetype of the universal energy of the displayed vulva, and what Miriam and Victor Marr in their book Sacred call Sacred Display, which was a beautiful framing of their function. And they have there's a question about their different meanings, but if I wanted to get to the very core of what I think their meaning is, is the vulva is an image par excellence of the ever-renewing life force of the goddess, and therefore she is really very fundamental to the processes of human life. Well, you know what I think is confusing about a Sheila when you look at her? She usually looks like an emaciated um, Mm -hmm. figure, 
you know, and sometimes she's kind of has the sagging breasts, and she's uh, she's not beautiful by any stretch of the imagination, and and she almost looks otherworldly. She doesn't even really look like an old woman, though. Obviously, she wouldn't be a maiden either, you know. And you said supernatural. Um, you know, it, it, what is that dichotomy, I guess, between the sacred life-giving vulva, but her looking so emaciated, almost like, I, I mean, is, is it in the symbol she is uh, death and rebirth um, all all in one? Yeah, I think you really got it in what you just said. She's an antinomy. She holds all the continuum of life in her very figure. Yes, she's a supernatural figure. She's a concept. She's conceptual art. This is no ordinary woman. No woman who ever walked the earth looked like a gig because as you know from your travels, her vulva can be half the size of her body. So this yeah. is, this is this is this is symbolic. This is conceptual. So what she holds is she holds all the processes of life. Yes, she has this tumescent, swollen vulva. She invites you in in her sensual thrust of her hips, and she's very. That part is very um, alluring, very inviting. But the re- but it's housed in a body, as you said, is a hag body or the crone. She can have emaciated ribs. She has shriveled breasts of the hag. Often they're bald. Often. She has the skull of death. So in that way, she's very, very menacing. So she is powerful. She's very powerful, and she's very mesmerizing. And I'm sure you found this in your travels, that you can't stop looking at her. You know, she mesmerized <laughs> people in the Middle Ages, and we are still fascinated with that figure today. Well, and, and you know, well, well, a couple things, yes, and I think people aren't just mesmerized, uh, but they well, they want to touch her, too. I mean, I saw oh, yeah. so many that were, you know, her, her vulva was just, you could tell it had been worn down uh, because so many people touched her, probably no doubt people, uh, women wanting to become pregnant, people wanting healing. Um, I mean, uh, she was this, um, this sacred amulet that people thought um, held, held the powers of life and death, as well as just being a symbol, don't you think? Oh, yes. I was just talking about her as a piece of conceptual art. And, of course, a symbol is something that has a foot in two worlds. It's literally there, but it has all these associations. And Maria Gimbuta said in um, The Language of the Goddess that the life-giver and death-wielder are really one deity, that the moment of death, life begins again in the body of the goddess and she called the great goddess the magician mother and I feel that Sheila carries those energies and yes she's very potent she has all the potent the potency of the powers of the female sex and to this day to this very day people come for her curative powers to rub her vulva and to feel that uh, the stone dust of her vulva is is powerful people uh, the Castle Manger Sheila in uh, County Cork, there's records for hundreds of years, centuries of people coming in their carriages or people walking there. She's on the uh, side of a Bridget well, and they come there to drink the healing waters and to rub the Sheilas. And many Sheilas are within reach to touch, and you can see that, like the Kilsarkin and other such Sheilas. Yes. Yes, they have a quite powerful healing. And the Behi Sheila in County Sligo in the northwest, 
she's on the Bahi Castle on a private farm, and to this day, people come and offer her, give her offerings of flowers and candles and prayers. So the traditions of the Sheila are very alive. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm going to tell you something that you'll probably laugh at me, but, um, you know, I, I was working working from a place of intuition because when I first was on the trail of these Sheilas, um, I didn't know as much as I do about them now, and I did know all the academic history behind it. I just I knew that was a goddess symbol. I knew I was in the vicinity, uh, so I had to find as many as I could find. You know, I was like uh, definitely on a hunt, and yeah. you know, my sen- sense of it was. I think especially when I went into places where the Sheila was over the door, um, you know, I had this sense that it was like she protected all within. It was almost as if if you walked, uh, you know, walked through this doorway and you were in that building that she was over the doorway, then it was like being in the protection of the mother's womb. And I, I and ever since then, I, I have always thought of her that way. You know, it's as if, you know, goddess advocates like us, you know, we should have a shield and a gig over the top of our of our doorways. Um, well, you know, I do, Karen, to, but... <laughs> okay, there you go. There you go, great minds. What can I say? Um, but uh, yeah, they're so they're so fascinating and um, so so incredibly, um, you know, beautiful in their I, I don't know their their austerity almost. Well, I would like to congratulate you for your intuition being spot on because my book I spent many hundreds of pages offering explanations and exploring the powers of the Sheila and what they are. And if I could boil it down to the main foundational function, I would say protection. I would say that. I would say they're liminal figures. They are guardians of the gate. And many of the Sheila-like figures or figures of sacred display around the world have that similar function. And, yes, many Sheilas are placed by doors, are placed by windows. So they are... You know, the vulva is the site of entrance and exit. The vulva is a dividing line between life and non-life. So, and when you enter a church, or you might be entering under her legs, like in the Kilinaboy Sheila, to pass into the church. And the church is a shift of consciousness, too, when you walk in there. So, yes, she is protective. And let me tell you about one of the happiest days of my life when I was doing research on, you know, the Chauvet Cave which was discovered in 1994, recently. Uh, Many people may have seen the great documentary by Werner Herzog, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. While I was sifting through things and reading the international rock artist, this art newsletter, and this is not a feminist journal. Well, at the very back of the cave, the Salle du Fond, 1,200 meters or steps back, um, there is... Uh, one the oldest image in the cave, and it is an etched vulva. It's a, or the, the it's a black triangle symbol of the symbol of the of the vulva and the powers of the great mother, and she is guarding an entrance. And there are four other she uh, four other vulva images in that cave, and each one is protecting an image. So it shows like, and your intuition is so uh, tuned in that this primal power 
on the image of the vulva or the female triangle shows that from the very beginning of its first imaginings has that power of protection. Mm. And you know, I didn't I didn't know that star. I, I've seen the movie and I remember that the the image way in the back sort of comes mm-hmm. down on, on this outcropping. But right. I didn't realize there was more than that one in there. Um so is there anything beyond that outcropping or is that the furthest back you can go, you know, sort of making that the holy of holies? We have the, the sanctum. Um, it's called the Salle du Fond, so it's at the very back. It's in the deepest recess of the cave, but that, um, that outcropping is um, by the entrance of, the, of that little cavity of the cave. So, uh, and that, I mean, I probably never will get to go through all of that cave, but that is, again, one of the oldest images. So, yes, it's in the very back. In the first, and, well, in, and it's in, considered uh, in, the oldest image in the cave, and and also is okay. uh, she is really the uh, generatrix of all the life in the cave, all the images of the animals and the lions and all the life in the cave. She's the 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 primal source. And we know um, from recent uh, discoveries that uh, all of the those red handprints uh, mm. that are in, in in different areas of the cave they've found they've discovered that those handprints were handprints of of women. Um, so if any of my listeners have not yet found this documentary, I please look for it on Netflix wherever you have to get it. Even if you have to buy it, it's worth it. Um, it's Cave of Forgotten Dreams. You will be so glad uh, to have this uh, in your library. And, and Star, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I just, oh, if somebody came up to me and said, Karen, you can have anything in the world you want, just whatever it is, it's yours. Now, I can't imagine why somebody would do that, but if they did, yeah, right. you know, it would, it would be to have a time machine. You know, I wouldn't ask for wealth. You know, I'd be tempted to ask for health. But you know what? That time machine to be able to go back and take part in whatever they were doing in that cave or just be a fly on the wall and to see the priestesses in these ancient temples, to, you know, see what how the people loved their Sheila Nagigs, you know, just immerse myself, you know, and uh, in these goddess cultures of, uh, you know, of, of all these. These, these years ago, it, uh, that would be just the most tremendous gift. Well, Karen, you have swept me away. I would love to. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I would love to be. I mean, even now, I still, one of these summers, want to do what I can to see the Paleolithic caves. The other thing I would time travel to is to take part in the Eleusinian mysteries. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, to have a feeling of the culture. You know, None of these things are necessary in the sense of, oh, you have to eat, you have to procreate. All these things are of the spirit. All these things are some other deeper transformative part of the human psyche and the imagination, which I think is the greatest force of evolution. So these people did all these things out of some other inner necessity of a celebration of the awe of the processes of life. 
Yeah, because, you know, you think about it. You know, you, we go back to that time. You know, they didn't, uh, uh, you know, they didn't have the corner grocery store. Uh, no. You know, they were, you know, to a certain extent, you know, subject to the elements. You know, their life was a lot more difficult. You know, if they were hunter-gatherers, they had to hunt and gather. Um, you know, it, a lot of their time had to be taken up with just survival. And to put the time that they did into, um, you know, cave art, artifacts, uh, you know, goddess imagery, all of these different things, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, uh, these ancient people had a more magical, mystical, yes. maybe even more yes. full life than than we do now. You know, I, I, it feels like to me they were they were so lucky, they were so gifted, uh, because we've over you know we've overcomplicated our lives, I think, and um, and and we're sort of missing the simplicity of um you know of the of, of the I don't know maybe I'm romanticizing here I don't know no the the experience of being alive the awe and wonder at the experience of being alive and I'm not sure how much if they had to work all the time I've read different things about maybe three or four days a week that they could gather and had other times but clearly they spent a lot of time because it's not easy to create that I mean they'd have to uh you know, go into total darkness and be with their, you know, oil lamps and find, I've read different accounts of this, or, you know, speculation, of course, that they would feel along the wall to feel if they could feel the spirit of whatever it is they wanted to draw. And that, it, again, it was some necessity to do that. And I don't know about you, but when I get a tax bill, sometimes I feel like, you know what, I wouldn't mind being in a Paleolithic cave in another time. <laughs> And we have a lot of stresses in our lives, and you know the election and all. I mean, we maybe we don't even go there, but you know, there's there's a lot of trauma in our lives, um, and of course, life does have struggle and losses and things. But these people were more tuned in with nature. They're absolutely connected with nature, and and the awe and beauty, the terror and beauty of being alive. And I think that's. What people really want, in a way, underneath it all, is to feel alive. Well, and and I would imagine too. Again, you know, we're speculating, but uh, you know, just you know, when I look at some of the ancient artifacts and everything, and you know, knowing how difficult maybe it was to create these things with stone tools, and I mean, they were labors of love. Um, and you wonder if they didn't have even a more meaningful or deeper connection with with source, with goddess, you know, whatever yes. they may be yes. th- thought. You know, um, you know, I, I just feel like you know, for all our sophistication, um, we've we've probably lost a lot. You know, the in many of the cave art, in the vulva is abstracted. It's a synecdoche, a part for a whole. It, that's standing in for the whole. It's just the image of the a pubic triangle or uh, carvings of vulvas. And yet they could draw with incredible sophistication all these animals and these, you know, animals running along the wall. And and the the Chauvet Cave is maybe 20,000 years 
apart from Lascaux. And these they were drawing in the same traditions. So somehow that culture must have been very satisfying to keep those traditions over, like, all those. I mean, it's inconceivable. You know, our country's 200 years old. I mean, imagine 20,000, 30,000. They just discovered a couple of years of old of the 37,000 years old. And the traditions yeah. of how they were draw, drawing these animals, that's such beautiful art. It's so moving. I mean, I don't think there's any artist that's any more skilled than these people. Well, yeah, I mean, I think their art can probably rival, the, you know, uh, the the best. And, yeah. and you know, speaking to the, you know, the duration of what they were doing, um, I mean, you, you mentioned the Eleusian Mysteries. You know, we forget, I think, sometimes that Demeter and Persephone were worshipped for 2,000 years. Yes. You know, yes. I mean, goddess yes. was no flesh in the pan. Um, no. You know, if no. anything, we're no. we're a flesh in the pan. <laughs> well, you know, bringing that up, one of the one of the, uh, the Demeter that brings up the figure of Balbo because I look at the Sheilinik again, Hermilia, and um, you know, a pagan soil with a medieval mindset, and I trace back through the art and literature of Europe going back to the Paleolithic case, which is a ground zero, a foundational image that makes the images of the vulva really a cosmological center of the imagination and as the source of all. But Balbo, uh, the old nurse, you know, Demeter, when she's grieving the loss of her daughter, and all the life on earth is dying, and no god on Olympus can make her change her mind. And what changes her mind when the old nurse lifts her skirt, does a dance, and ex- and displays her vulva. And that brings back the forces of life. Yeah. Well, and you know what's always intrigued me, too, and I, I wonder if in your research you've figured out that what the connection is. Um, You've you got Amaterasu and her counterpart, yes. Uzumi, sort of the exactly. same story. Exactly. And so that, you know, so we got we got Japan versus, not versus, but Japan juxtaposed alongside Greece, um, and practically the same story to a certain extent. Um, I, I mean, right. is, is there... Is there any more there than um, I mean, not not like I'm minimizing it, but obviously it's the power of the regenerative force. I think of of the vulva, the yoni. But I, I'm amazed that these 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 two myths in these two um, you know two different cultures, you know, Japan and Greece, could be so similar. Yes. Well, there's also um, Hathor when her uh, father Ra is having problems and is um, kind of being usurped and very dejected, she meets with him in a garden and she does the anasurmai or the sacred display of raising the skirts and she restores him. So there's there's really different stories of that, many different oh, stories. Oh, I didn't know about that one. Yes, <laughs> I didn't know yeah. about that one. Thank it's you for that. in my book. It's, it's all in my okay. book. And, um it, and there's other mythological stories of, you know, these conquering heroes wanting to destroy things and being stopped when women uh, display their vulva. So it's in other myths. And it's also in real life. There's stories of women like you and me, Karen, real-life women, who have stopped the forces of evil through their sacred display. Really? And I would, yes. Um, 
just recently in Nigeria, you know, the uh, Shell Oil Company, you know, one or Exxon, one of the most <laughs> forces of up to no good in our world, and have just destroyed the the delta there, and. It's in a movie called Naked Option, which your listeners can Google. And the women took over the oil facility, took over the oil facility and stopped productions of hundreds of you know, gallons of oil a day. And how did they do that? By threatening to raise their skirts. And the men backed down because if they raise their skirts, it's like saying, we are taking our life back from you. We gave you life, and we are taking our life back. And the men backed down, and the oil company backed down, and they got some of their concessions of, of, of what they wanted in terms of the land and in terms of getting jobs for their children. So uh, there are there. Are oh my God! And, I, I, yes. That's all we need to do. I mean, let's just that's go to Washington. I mean, can. can can't you imagine these stick up their butt, you know, Republican men oh who God. still still think they can tell us what we can and can't do with their bodies? If we raise our skirt at them, they'll go run for the hills. <laughs> well, they can't even stand to hear the word vagina. Remember that woman in was it Wisconsin, Lisa Brown? The she said it in the state assembly, and and one of the Republican uh, type uptight fellows thought it was like a pornographic word and i have this in my book i have that in my book but uh it's a great picture of code pink women for peace a wonderful organization of incredibly courageous women in 2012 in code pink they went in front of the republican convention in tampa tampa florida and they dressed as vulvas they had big pink costumes of themselves as vulvas. They called them vaginas, but, you know, people mix it up a little bit. But they were had, they, they had dozens of the women had these vulva costumes, and it said, read my lips, end the war on women. Wow. Was, I didn't know was, about that either. Oh, it's wonderful. And the thing of it is, it's in a way, it's like the pink pussy hats. It's in a spirit of play, in a way. And she said the cops would come up and want their pictures taken, and they got their point across. You know, they got their right. point across. And in 2016, and let me just say this, in Cleveland, hundreds of women stood on the banks of the river there naked and held up their Amaterasu mirror to reflect their disturbances at the war on women. So women are striking (laughs) at these conventions. Well, wow, I I did know about those, 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 uh, those, those uh, the Amaterasu ones or the the other. Uh, thank you, thank Completely you for sharing naked. that. Standing standing on the banks across the river from the convention in the morning, so when the rising sun hit the mirrors, reflected back to where the convention was. Wow. Well, and and you know, and and that's sort of parallel to the stories of women withholding sex, uh, so their husbands yeah. won't go to war. Uh, you know, I, I mean, the the power, you know, when you think about it, um, I, I mean, the, you know, the, the power of the life giver, you know, no wonder, no wonder, uh, and I'll just call it patriarchy, you know, no wonder patriarchy wanted to, um, you know, minimize woman, minimize her role as life giver, because maybe, maybe he, maybe men got tired of uh, playing second fiddle, if you will, 
you know. Uh, maybe that was the whole strategy behind uh, demonizing menstrual blood, you know, uh, making sex taboo. Um, you know, maybe at the heart of it, you know, it was to disempower the woman. And I, I've always thought, too, um, that this, uh, you know, this, uh, like, women in burqas and, you know, yeah. all of these um, uh, Abrahamic religious ideas that suppress the woman. You know, I think men are terribly afraid of women's vaginas. Now, some probably yeah. have a really good relationship with them, you know, but I, I think there's probably a lot of men that, you know, they've never seen one, they've never been really up close, uh, you know, and it, it, there's this this mystery about it, and I, I I don't know. I just think if men had a healthier relationship, if we all had a healthier relationship with sex, that you know maybe we wouldn't have so much of this crazy you know going on in the world. Well, I'm all for that. You can put that in my in my constitution of the kind of nation I'd like <laughs> to have. But I think you know in the earlier traditions um it's not clear that you know that it, the matriarchy wasn't the reverse of patriarchy that there was more of a um knitting together of the sexes not one sex dominating the other and whatever the rise of patriarchy is from maybe climate conditions and you know the russian steppes and people come you know coming in on the horses and the Kurgans and overthrowing old Europe and peaceful things, whatever those are, whatever the psychic things are, we do know, just like you were saying when you were standing on that sacred ground and knew something, that something couldn't be taken from you and existed, that there is evidence, like in the cave drawings, there's no, or in Chatelhuliak or Gobekli Tepe, there's no images of murder or people fighting wars. You know, these were very creative people. And I also think that now the thing that really patriarchy really fears is female sexuality and the chaos of nature because they can't be contained or controlled and they disrupt the efficient running of the machine of state. Yes, yes, yes. I I agree, I agree wholeheartedly. And, and 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 I. But beyond the machine of state, I think that there is this primal um, fear of yeah. of women's sexuality. You know, yeah. because you think about you know you think about the power in ancient times. You know, it was thought you know intercourse could uh, bring you closer to the divine. Uh, I mean, that's an incredibly powerful thing. You know, this this maybe this idea of being denied that, you know, if the woman denies the man uh, this this pleasure, you know, that gives her an awful lot of power. And, you know, maybe there's something about, um, you know, some men not wanting women to wield that kind of leverage, you know, uh, if you will. I don't will. know how much what it, you're saying now is tainted by, like, how we look at things. I mean, I don't know what it was like then. I mean, we do have evidence in the cultures of old Europe as a civilization of um, an egalitarianness. So I, I, I don't know what the weavings between the two relationships are. And, yes, it is a primal power. When I stand in front of the ocean, I, I love it, but... I know it's a mighty force and it can overwhelm me and can kill me, you know. So, yes, when you have right. something primal, which is um, 
really, and the Sheilas are primal, and the vulva is primal. So yes, uh, respect, awe, and I guess it could be overwhelming, but I don't know when uh, the distortion comes, of when it has to become um, oppression. Well, um, there was... I, I, Judy Grant wrote a book, and I'm trying to remember. It was something about menstrual blood. Blood, uh, roses and, and, uh, blood roses and I, red roses I and think, blood. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, something like that, uh, if not that exactly. And um, I, I think it was her that said something about there was a jealousy uh, for about over the blood. And, in fact, uh, male... Um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Not castration. Male uh, when when men have their uh, the the bris. Um, why can't I think oh, of oh, the word? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. The Yes, yes, yes. Um, That 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 bleeding, that offering up to God, is is sort of their, you know, you know them competing with women's blood. You know, I don't know. That's already pretty late. That's already pretty late. You know, you're in well, yeah, late in patriarchal times. times. Hmm. Yeah, and and then you think about the vagina, vagina dentata. You know, some of the the cultures that thought women actually had teeth. You know, in in their uh, in, in their vaginas. Um, you know, I, 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 there was a Maori uh, myths that uh, that said stuff like that. I don't know if it's beyond the uh, you know the Maori people or not, but it reminded me of recently there was a movie on television. Uh, I think it was called. If, forgive me. It was either Teeth or Bite. I can't remember which okay. one it was. I think it was Teeth, and and it was about this contemporary young girl who didn't know she had teeth down there and the only time the teeth would come out is if some some she was being threatened with assault um if she was a willing participant then the guy was safe but if he was forcing himself on her and he was going to penetrate her without her permission then the teeth came out and he ended up castrated and i thought hmm i wonder if that's some sort of primal fear uh, on some level that men have, you know, but what's in that deep, dark spot? <laughs> well, I mean, again, one needs, <laughs> these these processes are, are very fundamental. I mean, these are the mysteries of life, of birth and death, you know, and, and uh, sprouting along in your life. I, I don't know, this is, I guess, what I'm saying, is I don't know the origins of pathology. You know, I'm not sure what yeah. those... It, relationships were in the Paleolithic times, or in in throughout some of the Neolithic times before this um, turn to patriarchy in these earlier egalitarian. I mean, there's every evidence that these were egalitarian cultures. So, uh, but I don't. But still, we we could all be uh, in awe of these processes. But I don't know when it became um, lethal and a pathology. Yeah, or, or about or about fear. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I and, think and you could be fear. I mean, I think you could stand in awe in front of these processes and and have fear and trembling. Yes, I, I think that. But I don't know when it became like an institutionalized uh, degradation. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, well, and you also talk about the powers of the Sheila as a dark goddess and, and her functions and meaning. Did you want to maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Well, there are Sheilas. Again, she has, it's what I was saying before in terms of the magician mother or the death wielder and life giver. She is both those things. So in a way, it's sort of talking to your point exactly, is there is something fearsome about that. You know, we're just a little cork on the ocean, you know, and that, but these are, uh, again, using your word primal powers and powers to be respected. So there is something uh, fearsome about the Sheilas, and yet... It's keeping the boundaries. She guards over the boundaries of between life and death. She guards over the boundaries between entrance and exit. Between, uh, uh, she looks over territories. The boundaries of some shields are placed very high on castle towers, and they guard the territory. Some just guard the doors. Or uh, so. You know, if we had uninterrupted life, I mean, what is cancer but just murderous cells? proliferating in this wild fecundity. So, yeah, we need death as a balancer to keep life in balance. So that's part of her function, too, and that is an element of life. And, yes, it it is fearful, and there are Sheilas. You know, many Sheilas are on church looking over graveyards, and many are tombstones. uh, Not many, but some are tombstones. So that is part of, of her function, and there's no, you know, we live in a world uh, of opposites or a continuum, you know, that there's always moving between these forces. And this, this is part of life. And yet her whole body creates a unity, you know, because she's yeah. addressing yeah. the whole of life. There's a unity. There's not one part fragmented off. So, so, and in the end, there's a renewal. And the image of the vulva addresses certainly uh Paleolithic or early people, and our our concerns too that life will come again. That we want, we know there's life, we know there's death, but we want to feel that life will go on, and that's what the whole well, process is. Well, you were saying something when you were given your paper. Uh, there was one part uh, that I really remembered, and I can't remember the language you used exactly, but if you remember what I'm referring to, you were talking about the difference in symbols between, um, I guess, like these mother matriarchal cultures versus the warlike patriarchy. And do you do you remember that part of the talk? Yeah, I do. Uh, well enough I to do. kind of re- repeat a yeah. little bit about that. Well, what I was saying was that you know we have many crises in our culture, but one of the fundamental crises in our culture is our lack of connection to sacred images. It, traditionally, images function by connecting, making a bridge between the inner and the outer. The, the outer world of our five senses and the inner world, the immense inner world of the psyche or of the beyond that um, that are really the deepest, most transformative parts, that we are in an age of superficial, shallow images in the, the shadow of the information age is that we have a very passive relationship with, with, the, with our imagination. And this is, this is, so images are not functioning in a way, in the traditional way, to construct that bridge. And that leaves us in a very 
um, we're constructing a world of unreality, you know, and we're kind of living in these spectacles of illusion and media conglomerates feeding us these spectacles of illusion. And how can we connect with the whole of reality and foster the feeling of life if we can't connect to the most transformative parts of ourselves, which in some ways are beyond knowing, so that's why we need symbols. And we're living... In, you know, there's different ways of thinking. You can think in chains of cause and effect and rationality and reason, and reason has its place. It can let us, uh, you know, construct cars or drive to the airport or go to the mean, moon, but reason can never connect us to the forces of life, and we need this other kind of thinking, symbolic thinking, which goes beneath the surface and connects us to the deeper parts of ourselves. And images... Cosmological images create social uh, realities. They can legitimize political systems and moral order. So what I, one of the things I was saying in our talk, my talk was now we live under an image of God the Father instead of usurping the older image of the world being created from the great womb of the mother. So, And really, in many ways, we have this sort of war God image, and we're living in patriarchal, which has... Uh, patriarchy, which has this ceaseless search for enemies. It's a very unstable system that causes great toll on human life. So I was just talking about that function of images, and we have to look at what images, you know, what cosmological images are legitimizing our culture. And we were looking at, uh, and I think you've had her on before. You've had Heidi on, right, Abner? Uh, gotten her yeah, Heidi uh, Drotner, yeah. right. Yeah, she's been her, on. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, a founder of modern matriarchal studies are um, Peggy Sanday Reeves, writing about one of the uh, the Menanka Bow in West Sumatra, which is the largest living matriarchy now. And they have a matrilineal culture, and at the center of their image is Bundu Kundiang, who is a nurturing mother. And what you were saying in your talk, introducing the show of cultivating these ideas of partnership and nurturance. And in the Manaka Bao, in that culture, they say whatever the biological uh, impulses of male aggression are, that Reeves in her 20 years there had never found one case of rape. And when asked about that, the people said, well, you know, the men cultivated generosity and nurturance or can walk down the street with showing affection with each other. So we're not just biologically programmed animals, that images can give us a choice that we can't just, we don't have to just act out of these uh, eruptive instincts. So that was part of what I was trying to say. Yeah, and I found it I found it really interesting and I and I was wondering and I and I really don't know the answer to this. Um, you know, I'm thinking that you know, we originally had symbols and maybe we had symbols because we were illiterate and it was a way to convey ideas among people who were illiterate. But um and I, you know, and, and maybe there's there's truth in that, but I wonder if when uh, I don't know, maybe we lose something with the written word, and maybe there, you know, the alphabet and the goddess comes in there. You know, right. if the, his theory the is abstract, right, the phonetic alphabet. Yeah. Well, I think, 
again, as I said earlier, that the imagination is the greatest force for evolution That because it helps us imagine something new. And I think symbols are the oldest way that people have interpreted reality, not, you know, not language, not tools, is making images. And now, even if you read a book, what is that book doing? In words, it's creating images. Maybe those people in the Paleolithic caves were etching out vulvas or carving vulvas or drawing, you know, chambers of lions. So we had uh, visual images. So I think images are, and, and symbols are, in, are an essential part of what it is to be human. I don't want to live on the surface of rationality. That's a very dry place to inhabit. Yeah. Yeah, not not very not very luscious, is it? <laughs> no, it's not luscious at all. And you know, it, again, it has its it has its place. But we want what we were saying earlier, you know, to be connected to the forces of life. So I I think that image making and symbol making is an essential quality to being a human being. And again, in the more traditional function, sacred function, which connects us to the whole of life and the deepest parts of ourselves, because we. You know, you, you you were going to these places and you had your intuition, and I'm telling you like your intuition was completely historically and prehistorically correct, you know. So you we ha- we're not just, you know, you weren't just reading a guidebook. Deep inside yourself, you knew something. Yeah, yeah, it's like our DNA memory or something. Yeah, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know. So, well, well uh, before I let you go, I want to just talk a little bit about that book because your book is just uh, beautiful and incredible. And I know how hard it is to uh, get permissions to get pictures and books oh, and all of that. Uh, oh I, how many years? How many years did it take you to assemble all of those pictures and permissions? And I mean, it, it must have. How, how many years? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to say everything I'm talking about is in my book for your listeners. Okay. It's all in my book. My book has three parts. One is the history, tracing the Sheila gigs back to the Paleolithic origins, and then uh, the middle part are my journeys, my travels on the road, much like what you were describing. And the third part is the power of images, looking at display figures uh, all around the world and the powers of the imagination, what I've just been discussing, and then contemporary artists using uh, the Sheila and gig. And, and the, since the 60s, the emergence of feminist sacred art, which even the New York Times said is the most transformative, important movement in art in the last century. Well, they didn't quite say that. Wow. But they said it's one of the most... Um, uh, invigorating and uh, important movements. So it was a lot of work. It it was, you know, a couple of years, but I did it as I went along. I did it as I went along. I didn't wait till I was, I mean, I know a lot of artists, and then I have a lot of pictures myself from my travels, and then it is fun. It, you know, I was dissing the information age, but, oh, when you're doing research well, you know, it is, it's such a joy to have Google. So I could find different images but when you publish something you need permission so it's not just finding an image it's finding a way to get the source of the image and how you can do it so it's a lot of work and and also i was writing to all kinds of museums you know and most of the time the museums were so friendly and really nice but you know so it's you're on a mission. I mean, for me, writing this book was a mandate. I felt the Sheilas were at my back, you know, and they were helping me. So it 
you know, I'm a pretty slothful person, but I felt driven. You know, I had a passion, and I was in love, and I, so I worked at it. So were the Sheilas something that uh, have always been there niggling at the back of your mind, or was there something in particular that, um, I don't know, just sparked the Sheilas of all things to be the focus of your project? Well, in 1984, I saw... Uh, my first Sheila, a, a woman in my coven, showed me a Xerox of Jorgen Andersen's Witch on the Wall, which inaug- written in 77, inaugurated modern Sheila studies. And when I looked at them, I said, this is for me. I just fell in love. I mean, and I think that's the best way to work is to be in love. And I, I just, I just was completely captivated by them, and I had to know about them. And then, it, like I said, it was like a mandate. And I started traveling yeah. to Ireland and went through my my journey with all its ups and downs and ecstatic and terrifying moments. But that was that was it. You could almost say I had no choice. Yeah, yeah, you you were called. So do you yes. have a do you have a fa- a favorite Sheila? Oh. Wow. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me that, Karen. That's a, <laughs> That's a difficult question. Uh, yeah, it's like how do you pick between your children, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I. Wow, you made me speechless. I have certain Sheila's I think are very fierce, like the Landendrod Sheila in Wales. She's spectacular. She's just very immense. But then I love the Ballandary Sheila, who's most serene of all the Sheila's, and. Uh, uh, I, I can't say. I really can't say. Well, it's okay. Well, so would you say that? And I don't know. Um, so you you tell me. Has the the most recent Sheila that's been found, the one at Gobeki Tepke? Um, I mean, are, are we still uncovering these things every now and again? Or well, I wouldn't um, call that a Sheila. I wouldn't call that a Sheila. I would call it a female figure displaying her vulva because that's. That is the essence of the archetype is that um, she's kind of a dancing Sheila and she has long labia um, showing. But to me, there are different forms of that universal. It's universal energy, and that takes different forms. And the Sheila is an archetype, a manifestation of that universal energy uh, between 12th and 17th centuries in Ireland. So that's what a Sheila is. So I wouldn't call that a Sheila, but... Um, oh, so I I would say it's you know the root of it is which I think again is the foundation of human culture is the image of the vulva uh, because it's the most enduring image of creativity in the human record. So that's just another uh, manifestation of that uh, eternal play of energies. And uh, but the cover of my book is the Rahara Sheila, and she was discovered in 1990. So, yes, new Sheilas are being discovered. And I think as people are more aware of the Sheilas, I'm uh, in correspondence. This has been part of the fun thing of correspondence with different artists, a woman in England, and she lives there, so you know she can go around and she's a photographer. So new Sheilas, as we're becoming more aware of them, are being discovered. And this Sheila, the Rahara Sheila, was during a church cleanup, and they overturned the stone. And that's the picture I have in the book. The curator of the Roscommon Archaeological um, 
museum gave it to me, that it was just pulled up from the ground, and there she was. So, yes, new Sheilas are being discovered. Or the Gobekli Tepe, that's just been recently uh, discovered in the last decade. So, or the Chauvet Cave. So, yes, that's, that's a thrilling part of life, or new things are coming down the pike. Well, that's 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 very cool. Um, yeah, yeah, because it's uh, I, yeah. I mean that that there, it, it, much to the chagrin, probably still to the church. <laughs> yes. Who, uh, I, I, I know sometimes they've taken her images and put put it away. Um, you know, I don't know if it's because it was an embarrassment or it was uh, too much uh, too much a competition. Uh, you know, uh, you know, too too powerful an image that they uh, you know couldn't overcome. But um, so, do you do you have any uh, any plans in the future to uh, uh, you know go on pilgrimage again and uh, look for any more Sheilas or visit some you haven't yet seen? Well, I would always love to see more Sheilas. Um, I'm in correspondence with Jack Roberts, who uh, I don't know what maps you used when you were over in Ireland, but he he's got a new book coming out. We were writing, and uh, so and more Sheilas are being discovered. So his book's coming out in the next couple of months, and he's trying to make even more accessible. So yes, I would always love to do that. But one of the things I'm really yearning to do is visit the Paleolithic caves, because that's mm. that's the foundation of this universal pattern of energy of the displayed vulva and the powers and the universal powers of females and 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 the idea that when a Sheila parts her thighs, that is not a shameful act, it's a holy one. And that starts back yeah. at the beginning of the culture in the Paleolithic cave. So I would love I would do you wanna to go to Europe with me? <laughs> well, maybe so. You know, there, we're, it's getting to the point. I, I worry about how long people will have access to these caves. You know, yeah. um, it. it yeah. I mean, I know some of them. They're already uh, creating. Um, uh, like models, you know, yeah, uh, because yeah, exactly. uh, people's people's breath and uh, you know they they just take too much of a beating. So it's it you know it's That's almost true. as if That's you know true. go go soon go soon or um, <laughs> uh, the 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 doors the doors may close. But um, well, we'll start. I, I, you know, is there anything else you wanted to say about the Sheilas or the book or uh, or anything that um, you know we've we've not covered tonight? Well, I guess I would want to end on yesterday. I got the new Time magazine, and on the cover is a pink pussy hat, and this is the latest iteration of the powers of the vulva. This is this to me is the reclaiming of the power of women saying. You want to say you can grab my pussy? You you want to make a degraded comment? In, in the spirit, I think, of creative play is they're commanding and taking back that image and putting on those pink pussy hats, which are so fun and lovely and empowering. And to see that on the cover of Time, and to me, that's I'm right back at the Paleolithic caves. I'm all through the history, all over the planet. I'm looking at the Sheila and the Gigs, and I think it's just thrilling. 
I, I, I totally agree. And, and, you know, and probably the conversation about vaginas and, and yonis and everything, uh, we, we would probably be remiss if we didn't give a little bit of a shout-out to Eve Ensler, Absolutely. you know, with the vagina monologues. You know, Absolutely. because she, I think... I, I, and you know, and, and I, I can't remember before those came along if we could talk quite so openly in public. Uh, and yeah. you know, what a, um, you know, what, what a, uh, you know, incredible um, game changer uh, those vagina monologues were. I completely agree, and it's a great piece of art. And I admire her courage, and and she's on the front lines. And so these words of vagina and vulva and pussy, they've come back into the zeitgeist. And this is the spirit of our times. It's part of the greatest event of our time, which is the return of the goddess. And and she's all part of it. And I, I give endless kudos and admiration to her. Well, and I have to get myself one of those pink pussy hats. Oh yeah, <laughs> they were selling them I, yeah, at the, I'm gonna, at the, I, at the uh, conference. They were selling them. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I got mine. I did it. Oh, I missed. Oh, I missed that. I missed that. Well, yes. maybe maybe I'll get lucky and one of my listeners will send me one. Hint, 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 hint. <laughs> listening. Well, you know what? They're, they're around. They're around. Okay. Okay. Um, well, Star, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, your incredible uh, work in the world and everything you've been doing for your lifetime to, you know, rebirth the sacred feminine and, um uh, and, and it's been such a pleasure uh, to have you on the show. I, I hope, especially since you're just down the street from me, I hope our paths cross again. I hope so, too. And I, I, one of the highlights of the conference for me was meeting you finally. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It did. And ditto. Ditto back at you. Uh, it, it, was, it was fun. It was really a lot of fun to meet you as well. And thank you. Thank you for being on the show and bringing all your wisdom and, and birthing your beautiful book into the world. Well, it was my pleasure. All right. All right. Well, uh, good luck with the book. And uh, listen, if anything else comes up that uh, you think uh, listeners uh, might need to hear about, uh, don't hesitate to uh, pop me an email. All right. Thank you so much, Karen. You're, you're welcome, and good night. Good night. <sighs> yeah, I am going to have to find me one of those pink uh, pink pussy hats. Um, I didn't actually make the march, uh, unfortunately, um, and much to my disappointment, uh, I had promised uh, a sister priestess that I would drive down to San Diego uh, on the on the weekend that was the march, and uh, she was starting a new priestess class, and she always asks me to kick off the year and a day training with her, uh, and. Uh, you know, I had made that commitment. So as much as I wanted to be at those incredible marches, uh, I had to miss it. So I had to live vicariously through all my friends. And apparently the one here in Los Angeles was a pretty big one. They uh, say that there were, uh, they, uh, you know, the num- uh, men and women uh, numbered like 750,000. So, uh, yeah, of all the ones I miss, I miss the big one. But you know what? I have no doubt. I have no doubt at all that that is just the beginning. That certainly won't be the last march of its kind or uh, or, or its um, 
or, or how big it was. You know, there will, there, if anything, I, I think this uh, um, this resistance uh, is just going to grow. So uh, that uh, that all being said. Um, uh, I just have a little bit uh, of uh, news here from Joe Carson uh, I want to share with you. So here we go. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of the earth as a rock or tree. And I came out of it. This is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, you were just listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of the goddess as Gaia. Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot the film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them yourself but haven't, this is a great opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only 20 bucks at DancingWithGaia.com. That's DancingWithGaia.com. And um, I have to just make another shameless plug uh, for my own new anthology just out, uh, which I'm happy to say includes a wonderful essay from leaders in our community like Ann Baring, Rianne Eisler, Starhawk, Carol Christ, and many other important visionaries as well as new voices carrying the torch for sacred feminine liberation theology you know, who explain in really relevant terms why goddess ideals is the spirituality of freedom, fairness, and evolution. So, uh, again, the title is Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward. Uh, You can get a signed copy from me. Uh, Just go to my website, karentate.com. Once you're there, go to the Goddess Store page, and uh, you can be uh, one of the first uh, to have your own signed copy from me and discover how goddess ideals go way beyond what color candle to use on your altar because goddess ideals uh, are about social justice, the common good. And, you know, you might like to know the book is dedicated to Rianne Eisler and Bernie and Jane Sanders. And as you probably heard me say, Bernie's ideals are goddess ideals. So let's all get with it and rec- uh, reconcile our spirituality and our politics. And uh, if you want to pick up a copy, uh, if you're in the Southern California area, you can pick one up at the book launch party for Goddess 2.0, uh, which is going to be uh, Saturday night, February 18th, at uh, the Museum of Women slash uh, Goddess Temple of Orange County in Irvine. Um, 
So, uh, you know, please come by. We have a great uh, evening planned, and there's going to be lots of fun and revelry and merriment and resistance and raffles. Uh, all of these R's, revelry, resistance, raffles. <laughs> so, as I said, if you're in the Southern California area, please uh, please join us. Um, so, before I say uh, good night, I want to remind you to please click the follow button on my show page so you get notice of uh, what broadcasts are happening each week moving forward. And... Um, as a reminder about how important it is uh, to understand and practice the concept, what we nourish thrives and what we neglect withers, um, please know that goes for all uh, phases of your life. Uh, be sure you feed what nourishes you. And if this show nourishes you, if it feeds you, if it gives you inspiration or insight, please feed it so it grows and thrives. Uh, don't be one of those folks that um, just you know, goes to the ATM and makes withdrawals. Um, you know, it's uh, it often people do that with goddess too. You know, they go to their altar and they say, goddess, please give me love. Please give me money. Please help me find a job. Please help, help me be healthy. But, you know, they forget to say, goddess, thank you. Thank you for this or thank you for that or uh, incredible goddess, uh, you know, thank you for embracing me uh, in your golden wings. So it, it is so important that we uh, practice uh, generosity and gratitude. It uh, makes a big difference uh, in our lives. So, um, you know, I guess I even like to say gratitude and appreciation or the gas in the tank of your life. Uh, it keeps you going. Fill it and you'll speed down the road. Uh, only take and never give back and you'll find your life sputtering down the road or maybe even broken down in a ditch. So um, the two uh, mottos of the show I'll close with tonight. You've heard them before, and uh, they're always worth repeating. Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And uh, author Schoenhauer said, all truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted for being self-evident. And I think... Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology falls into those categories. That is the phase that we have been going through. So, dear listeners, I am going to um, officially close the show with a little bit of music tonight, and uh, I'm going to go back to that uh, reclaiming song that uh, opened the show called Sweet Water. Uh, I just love the melody, love the words, so I'm going to play it one more time. So for the next three minutes, I hope you uh, sit back, take a breath, uh, soak in the you know, the great music and lyrics. And uh, don't forget to be back with me uh, next Wednesday. Thank you so much and good night. Mm-hmm.